We are continuing our study in Revelation chapter 20. That is where we are. We are finishing it. We did the first, uh, so three quarters or so last week, and this week we're doing the last quarter beginning in verse 11. But we will begin reading in verse 1 just to get sort of a, a continuity and a flow for what we're dealing with this morning. So I will read, if you'll follow along, in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 15. The Bible says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released a little while. And I saw thrones, and they uh, they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God. And fire, <clears throat> excuse me, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Lord, as we read this this morning, it is truly an awesome and an awe-filled passage of Scripture. And we ask you, Lord, to speak to us this morning. Illumine your word to our hearts, Lord, as we consider some difficult things, but very true. Lord, would you minister to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever we come to a passage of Scripture that talks about judgment, you know, it's something that a lot of times we shy away from, especially if you are on the fringe in your relationship with God, meaning maybe you're saved, but you're not really walking with the Lord, or if you don't know Christ, if you've never given your life to Him, this can be a very frightful topic and subject and passage of Scripture. Nonetheless, because we are committed 
to going through the Bible verse by verse and not skipping anything, uh, which I am so grateful for in our movement, um, we come to a very difficult passage this morning in verse 11 of chapter 20, and the reason I read the entire passage is so we would have a context and a flow for what we're getting into this morning. In verse 11, we have this thing mentioned in Scripture called the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ. Uh, drawing your attention back to verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him, capital H, referring to Jesus, who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. The white throne judgment will be nothing like our modern court cases. At the white throne, there will be a judge but no jury, a prosecution but no defense, a sentence but no appeal. No one will be able to defend him or herself or accuse God of being unrighteous or unjust. What an awesome scene that will be on that day. Someone has very aptly said, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Sounds like a riddle, what does it mean? You see, we're all born, right? If you're here, you've been born physically. And when a human being is born into uh, our existence, into our world, they're born physically. But uh, if you don't give your life to Christ, you will die twice, meaning you will die physically at the end of your life, whenever that is. But then at this thing called the great white throne judgment we face this morning, you will die what is called the second death. And we will talk about that as we go a little further. But the second half of that, if you were born twice, you die once. Again, you were born physically into this earth. But if you were born again by the Spirit, as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again through the blood of Christ. You must trust in the sufficiency of Christ's death, and you must repent of your sins. That means turn from your ways and turn to God's ways. If you do that, and if you're born again, then you were born a second time, or you were literally born twice. You're born physically, and you're reborn spiritually. And if you're born twice, then you die once, meaning you die a physical death at the end of your life. We all die that physical death. But the second death, we were told as we read that passage of Scripture, has no power over us if we are found in Christ. So if you're born once, you die twice. If you are born twice, you die once. Now, before we get into this thing called the Great White Throne Judgment, I want to draw your attention to turn with me this morning back to the passage of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And we're going to look at this passage of Scripture because in verse 10, we have this thing called the Bema Seat of Christ. And this is the judgment that believers face. And in order to understand that there is a separation of two judgments, there is a, a judgment or a rewarding of believers for their deeds and their life done uh, in Christ. And then there is the great white throne judgment, which is a horrifying judgment where all of those who do not know Christ are judged for their sin. So back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, referring to our resurrection body. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. 
If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For if we who are in this tent, referring to the body, groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the Lord, we are absent from the, excuse me, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So this passage of Scripture teaches us and tells us so much about our life in Christ. If we are in Christ, and this passage is written to believers, to Christians, He gives us a a theology, if you will, of our body and of life. First of all, if we know that we have this earthly house, this physical body, our tent, as Paul refers to it, we understand that it will be destroyed. And if you, you know, have lived for, you know, one year, maybe not as a little kid, say one to five, but as you get older, you realize, especially once you get in your 30s and 40s and 50s, the body's deteriorating. It's not what it once was. Can I get an amen from somebody on that? All right. You have to get glasses. Uh, You have have things. You have to see the doctor. You have to get an annual physical. You have to get your cholesterol checked. Everything is, uh, from the the physical point of view, the the physicists call it, everything is increasing to a higher state of disorder. It's known as the second law of thermodynamics. And we know that we are not intended to live forever. Even Moses tells us in Psalm uh, 90, he says, if uh, by God's grace and strength we live 70 years or 80, you know, we want to learn to number our days that, he, that we might present to him a heart of wisdom, that we've learned that we have an end and that we have a maker. And here in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul refers to that. We groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Having watched now three parents die, and watched that process as the body deteriorates. And you see it and you, and you think as you grieve watching that happen, you think, this is my end, right? This is my destiny. I will one day be doing this and, and by God's grace, hopefully my kids will be gathered around my bed, you know, as these things are happening. But one thing is for sure, nobody escapes death, right? It's going to happen. So Paul gives us here, if you will, a theology of death. In 2 Corinthians 5, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, meaning when we pass from this life to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So it's going to happen. Not that we should be morbid and think about this and dwell on that, but we should not be unrealistic and we need to understand we're not going to be in this, this world forever, right? So there is a time coming when we will pass from this life And if we know Christ, we will go be forever in the presence of the Lord. 
And so he, he says, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Spirit has been given to us. Ephesians 1 tells us this. We're told in this passage. The Spirit's been given to us as a guarantee. The deposit of the Holy Spirit is described in Ephesians 1 as an earnest, a guarantee, like a down payment, to assure to us, as, as Paul wrote to us in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. All right? So that's the theology of life and death in a nutshell, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 6. So we, we all, we're always confident knowing that while we were at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, and we are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So we know that when believers die, we pass from this life into the next. And literally, our last breath in this life ends, and the first breath in the new life is in the presence of the Lord. And forever we shall be with the Lord. But those who do not die in Christ, who do not know Christ... When they breathe that last breath, they go to that place. We referred to it last week. In the Old Testament, it's, it's called Sheol. In the New Testament, it's called Hades. And it's the place of death. It's the abode of the dead. It's the grave. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment as well in our passage this morning. But I wanted to, to give you this as groundwork. And then uh, we come to uh, verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 5. For we're confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. So there's, there's your theology. There's a life verse if you don't have one. Make it your aim for every day that you live your life in this body, in this earthly tent, to be well-pleasing to the Lord. What, a, what an, an incredible goal if you wrote that at the top of your schedule every day, I want to live this day. I want my life to be well-pleasing to him. And then verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ in the Greek language, that is the word, the bema seat of Christ. It means a place of reward, not a place of judgment in the sense of neg negative things. That each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So one commonality you're going to discover this morning is that both for believers and unbelievers, the deeds done in the body are being judged by God. But the unique thing for the believer is because we're in Christ, God burns away those things that don't matter, and those things that matter and that remain, he gives us rewards as we enter his presence. Because, you see, sin has already been judged on the cross of Jesus Christ for the believer. So that little saying we made about, you know, uh, born once, die twice, born twice, die once, for the one who is born twice, that means we've already had our sin judged on the cross of Jesus Christ because we've put our faith and our trust and our hope in him. And this is what we review every year at Easter, isn't it? Because when we talk about the cross, when we talk about what happened on that day uh, when Jesus was crucified, and then we talk about the ninth hour uh, or the, the twelfth to the third hour, I forget, I get mixed up at the moment, but you know, when it went dark and when God poured his wrath out on the cross, it was at that time that God judged sin in the blood of Jesus Christ and the holy righteous, righteous sacrifice of Christ. And remember, even Jesus said in that moment, as there's this, this divine rift happened in the Godhead, 
Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he felt that, that tear in the universe as the Father and the Son were for the first time ever and the only time ever in, in history as we could know it, they were separated because the sin of the world was laid upon Jesus. And it says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body. So we will stand before Christ. And as we read this passage, I believe it happens in chapter 20 here earlier at this time called um, the first resurrection in verse 5. I believe that's where we, the church, appear before Christ. I believe that is a reference to the Bema seat of Christ here in 2 Corinthians 5.10. And so uh, I wanted to lay that as background for us all because when we get here to uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, where he says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, um, whose, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was no place found from them. At this judgment, there will only be unbelievers and there will be no rewards given out to them. Uh, heaven and earth will flee away and no place will be left for sinners to hide. All must face the judge. The judge is Jesus Christ for the father has committed all judgment into his hands. These lost sinners rejected Christ in life. Now they must be judged by him and face eternal death. Every unbeliever will be held accountable for the truth that he or she has heard in this life. Each lost sinner will receive just what is due him or her, and none will be able to argue with the Lord or question his decision. God knows what sinners are doing, and his books will reveal the truth. This is a sober moment, perhaps the most sober moment in human history. Now, God said to Jesus, and Jesus repeated back to us in Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We talked about this last week in the thousand-year reign of Christ. In Acts chapter 17, we find this recorded. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, referring to Christ. And he has given assurance of all this to all by raising him from the dead, assuring us that Jesus would be the one who sat as the judge. In John chapter 5, verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from life into death, the beam of seed of Christ. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live the first resurrection. For the Father has life in himself and so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man, the great white throne judgment. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice 
and come forth. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, that's the Bema Seat of Christ, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, the great white throne judgment. The most natural interpretation of the fact that earth and sky flee away from his presence is that the present earth and sky are destroyed and will be replaced by the new heaven and the new earth referred to in Revelation 21. John sees a new heaven and a new earth replacing the first heaven and the first earth. Frequent references in the Bible seem to anticipate this future time when the present world will be destroyed. And we'll look at a couple of those scriptures. According to this last reference, the day of the Lord, 2 Peter 3.10, will come as a thief in the night. So let me share that with you. 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'll just read 9 through 13 because this frames this uh, event. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, this is very important, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, so he says here in Revelation 20, verse 11, uh, that second half, and heaven and earth uh, fled away, and there was no place found for them. This is when that judgment of God and, and the heavens and the earth are consumed by the fire of God, and they flee away as God is bringing judgment to those who do not know Christ. And as we just read in that passage in Second Peter, God's heart is a heart of mercy. God wants that none should perish. The time is now, this time we call the church age, we sometimes refer to it as the age of grace. This is a time when the gospel is freely being preached throughout the entire earth. And the scriptures tell us that everyone will hear. And we often have these questions, well, how do people in these remote places of the world hear? God will be faithful. God will get the truth to them in some way. I mean, today we, we live in a time and an age where phones smartphones are in the hands of most people on the face of planet earth i mean think about the american-based news agencies can be popping up on some tribal leader's phone in a jungle and this is true this is happening today i've seen pictures of nomads on the backs of camels and they look like they're straight out of you know the you know 900, 10, uh, thousand years ago, and they're sitting there with their phones reading the news on the back of their camels in the middle of the desert. This is happening. We live in a time, and these are signs, in my opinion, we live in a time when the gospel can reach every soul on the face of planet Earth. You know, before, if you go back even 100, 200 years, we were dependent on missionaries going to these people, and unless a people group had a missionary assigned to them, they were never going to hear the gospel, unless it was through the general revelation of God, which we see in, in passages like Psalm 19, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And by the way, we hear these stories even today of people in remote places in the Middle East where the gospel has no 
reception where no one can go in and preach it, where God is appearing to them in dreams and they are hearing the gospel and in the dreams accepting Christ and repenting of their sins and being saved. So even God himself is preaching the gospel to people. As we heard testimonies yesterday, and I can't wait for you to hear them. I was so blessed, and my wife's testimony is very similar, of just being alone and God revealing himself, manifesting his presence. And in that moment, repenting and sensing the presence of the Lord and knowing that they were forgiven. Nobody there giving them a tract, you know, reading John 3.16 to them, but just the presence of the Lord. God is so faithful. And he will and he is revealing himself across the face of planet earth. So sometimes we question these things. We have a hard time with it. God, how and why and can you do this? And the answer is yes. God can, God will. Look at what God has done already. Look at what he's done in our lives just here in this small group of people. God is totally capable of getting the gospel to the remote, most remote person in their language in a way that they can understand. God is faithful, and on that day, when people begin to appear before God, every man will be without excuse. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. You know, God's a bookkeeper. He writes things down. You know, and sometimes we think that we can say what we want to say and do what we want to do. And sometimes we have a mistaken idea that just because I'm a Christian and just because I'm under the blood of Christ that I can just do what I want. And the answer is, no, you can't. Because God sees, God hears, God knows. For the unbeliever... Everything is written in the book, and it will be used against them one day in God's court of law. For the believer, it's all covered by the blood of Christ, but we have things telling us even now, like Romans chapter 6, verse 1, that says, how, how shall we who sin continue, uh, how shall we who are under the grace of God, you know, how, you know, how shall we continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? You see, so we can't make excuses for our sin. Oh, you know, it's under the blood of Christ and we just kind of sweep it under the rug and move on. No, if, if we sin intentionally and willfully and we know we're doing it and we're, basically we're doing it in rebellion to God, but as a believer, that's, that's a frightening thing. And that's why we have those passages like uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 10 or so, where it says, that uh, we as believers experience the discipline of the Lord. Just like a, a good parent would discipline his or her child, in like manner, God who loves us infinitely and immeasurably will discipline his children when we go awry, when we do things wrong. When we embrace wrong and evil in our lives, God says, yes, it was judged on the cross, but there's still consequences to your sin. Has anybody ever experienced the consequences of their sin? Of a bad decision? Of words that have been spoken that you couldn't take back? Of attitudes? You know, it's, it's a horrible thing. I mean, it's so humiliating, isn't it, when we have to endure the consequences of our sin? But thank God we're under the blood of Christ if we know him.
And it's already been judged in the cross. But for these people, because they have rejected Christ, because they've had every opportunity, and they will stand before God, and he will open these books. Here's what happens. John sees the dead standing before God, awaiting their judgment. From the context, it may be assumed that these are the evil dead who were not raised in the first resurrection. The phrase great and small has been used uh, elsewhere in the book of Revelation three times, and it indicates that those appearing before the throne come from all walks of life and degrees of greatness, and their standing posture means they are now about to be sentenced. It's, now at, it's just like at the end of our court cases when the judge comes in and the jury's in and they've rendered their verdict and they say, all rise, will the defendant rise, and then the judge reads the verdict. That's what's happening here, except it's happening for everyone who is not in Christ. Their standing posture means that they are uh, about to be sentenced. And this is a fulfillment of the principle of Hebrews 9.27 that is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Now, Daniel 12, uh, we've, we've talked about before how in the book of Revelation there's so much in the Old Testament and, and as well as in other parts of Scripture that help clarify this. Daniel 12.1 at that time, Michael <clears throat> excuse me, shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who was found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, 2, foretold of there. John 5, 28. Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And coming forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In John 5, 29, again, you have the Bema Seat of Christ, and you have the great white throne judgment. Paul said in Acts 24, 15, in one of his defenses before a council, he said, I have hope in God that they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, we're told here in this verse that books were opened. And then it says the book of life was opened. We know what the book of life is. The book of life has been re you know, referred to many times in, in the New Testament, but what are these other books that were opened? We're not actually told, but here's some of the other books that are referred to in the scriptures. In Exodus 24, 7, we are told that um, he took the book of the covenant and read in it the hearing of the people. That's probably referring to the books of Moses. Uh, in Numbers 21, 14, we, it says, Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, and then it goes on to say what it says, and it, but that book is nowhere to be found, the book of the wars of the Lord. Deuteronomy 31, 26, and many times throughout the Old Testament, the book of the law is referred to, again, referring to the, the books of Moses. In Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, and in 2 Samuel 1, 18, we have a reference to this thing called the book of Jasher. Uh, so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? What is the book of Jasher? Some believe that this is referred to as the book of the righteous. Maybe it's an ancient reference to even the book of life. 
uh, the Lamb's Book of Life, perhaps, but we don't know. But these other books are mentioned in the Scriptures without clarification on what they are. Second uh, Chronicles 12:15, the acts of Rehoboam, first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah the prophet and of Edo the seer concerning genealogies? There's another book referred to, and then there's one more. Excuse me, two more. In uh, Psalm 69:28, it says, uh, "Let them be blotted out of the book of the living for their iniquity. Let their names not be written with the righteous." Again, an ancient reference, we believe, to the book of life. And in Malachi 3.16, uh, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Perhaps, again, a reference to the book of life. So when it says here, um, And I saw the small and the great standing before God, and books were opened. So it would seem that God has other books, whatever they are. And it says another book was opened, which is the book of life. And so here's the interesting thing that is brought up here. God judges by those whose names are not written in the book of life. It's not telling us that he went to, you know, the book of unlife, the book of the dead. He says, he's looking at people and he's saying, oh, your name's not written in the book of life. Off with you. It's amazing, God has a book, it's called the book of life, and this tells us that what God cares about is life, what God cares about is redemption, what God cares about is repentance. That's why we have scriptures telling us in many places, like we read in, in 2 Peter, you know, God cares about people, he wants everyone to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is why he judges by the book of life. So the question might be, and it's a good question, how does my name get in the book of life? And it's very simple. It's by being born again. It's by receiving Christ. It's by repenting of our sin. It's by turning to the Lord. We can say it a hundred different ways. But the net of it is we have to turn from our pride and we have to turn to the grace of God. We have, to we have to turn to the solution that God has offered us through his son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of our sins. You see, there's no other path to God. There's no other path to being forgiven. There's no other path to relationship with the almighty God but through the person of Jesus Christ. And so there is a divine transaction that takes place on that day when a person confesses their sin to God and says, Lord, I repent and I come and I receive the righteous, holy act of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for my sin. And in that moment, God pens in the book of life my name and your name and the name of anyone who believes in him. And I believe personally that when Jesus gave us that example of the thief on the cross, that he's giving us hope against hope that even for those people whom we know who have not yet received Christ, that even on their deathbed, that in that last moment, there can be that divine transaction that takes place in their heart between them and the Lord. And only, only then on that great day when we are before God will it be revealed, you know, there's going to be this throng in heaven, and that's, that's all of us who believe in Christ, but wouldn't it be good to know, I mean, this is kind of, we live in this information age, right? I would like to know the statistics, on how many people made it in at the last second, right? 
How many thief on the cross type salvations were there, God? Just so we can understand how gracious God is. Isn't, wouldn't that be amazing? You know, why did he tell us these parables like the parable of the workers in the vineyard? Oh, this guy went in. He was there at 7.30 in the morning, bright and early. He was on time. He showed up for work. But then there's this guy who showed up at 10 of 5, 10 minutes before quitting time. And he went in and worked for 10 minutes. And he got paid the same wage as the guy who showed up at 7.30 and was on time. God, that's not right. But in God's kingdom, it is. Because he cares, because he loves. That's, that's the way he is. We sang the song, Good, 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 Good Father, right? That's who you are. And so this is the way God is. And so he gives people every opportunity to turn to him. Revelation 20, verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their works. So death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Death and Hades, I believe, is just a reference to Sheol and Hades and that place, that holding tank, where all of those, the, the dead who were not in Christ have been, and they've been waiting for all those years for the great white throne judgment. They're, in, they're incarcerated until they appear before the judge. And when it says the, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, I think first it alludes to the many people who died in the sea. We probably have no idea how many people have died on the ocean. But secondly, that all people, regardless of the state of their physical bodies or their mode of death, must be resurrected to appear before Jesus. You see, sometimes we struggle with these issues, right? We think of, you know, the physical body and we look at embalming and then we have these questions about uh, you know, what if someone gets cremated or what if they die in a fire or what if, you know, you know we start to think about how the, a person dies. And listen, before God, God sees the person. He sees those things that are not as though they were. God sees the body. He created the body. He, remember when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2? He spoke the worlds into existence. So it's no trouble for God to find all the little molecules of a person's body and put it back together regardless of how disintegrated or deteriorated their body is, regardless of whether there's a, 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 you know, a skeleton in a sarcophagus somewhere, or whether that body long ago deteriorated in the dirt and there's nothing left, God can take those people and put them back together to bring them before his throne, whether it's, again, the Bema seat of Christ or whether it's the great white throne. So the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. In Matthew chapter 25, the Gentiles are judged according to their works in the sense that the works distinguish those who are saved, that is, the sheep from those who are lost, and the goats. Here the works evidently are such that salvation is not the issue, but rather the degree of punishment as there is no indication that any righteous are found in this judgment. So just as before the Bema seat of Christ, we are judged by our works, but our works are, are used to give us rewards. In the case of the, the, the dead who do not know Christ, they are judged for their works, but apparently it somehow determines the degree of their suffering in the eternal lake of fire. I can't even imagine the suffering and some may suffer more, some may suffer less, but they all are tormented forever in a place that is apart from the presence of God. 
One commentator wrote this, and I think it illustrates the point. He says, because this is not a trial but a sentencing, there is nothing for these who stand before the throne to say. Many think they will tell God a thing or two. Ever heard that from anybody? So there is, this is a letter, this is a little bit dated, but it was a letter written to Dear Abby. Now, those of you who have never seen a newspaper don't know who that is. But there used to be a column in a newspaper called Dear Abby, um, and they would write in and ask their question you know, for advice, and if you were fortunate, you were chosen, your letter was published. Here's one such letter that was published. Dear Abby, I am troubled with something. What right do we mortals have to demand uh, an explanation from God? Abby, that writer has... I'm sorry, did I miss my... No, okay, I got it right here. Dear Abby, I'm troubled with something. Uh, what right do we mortals have to demand an explanation from God? Um, Abby, that writer has never known the gut-wrenching pain of losing a child. I get it. I'm, I'm back because she's responding to a letter somebody else wrote. Uh, God didn't answer my prayers, and I resent being told that I have no right to question God. If there is a God... And if I ever get to meet him face to face, you can bet your life I will have plenty of whys for him to answer. I want to know why my little girl died and why that drunk driver was allowed to go on living. I love her more than my life and I miss her so much. I am mad that I am having to live in a world where she no longer lives and I want to know why. Why shouldn't I have the right to ask God? Aren't we supposedly created in his image? And if so, surely he has a heart and a soul capable of hurting just as I hurt. Why would he not expect to be questioned if he has anything to do with miracles? I don't fear the Lord. And I don't fear hell either. I know what hell is like. I've already been there since the day my precious daughter was killed. Signed, a bereaved mother. And the commentator ends with this comment, of course, there will be no criticism of God on that day. This desperate mother will see not only the righteousness and the goodness of God, but she will also see her own sin and rejection of him more clearly than ever. How we wish she knew how the Father himself knows what she has gone through. We read a story like that and our heart breaks, right? I mean, how can you hear a story like that in your heart and not break? The pain of losing a child. I mean, how many of us have ever experienced something like that? It's something we wish upon no one. But in her, her bitterness, it turned the wrong way. It took a left-hand turn. And she shook her fist at God. And she wanted to judge God. And she wanted him to explain, if such a God exists, why. And no doubt there are a lot of these kinds of things in people's lives, perhaps some even in our lives. But if we know Christ, we understand from reading his word that God is sovereign. And yes, God is gracious and merciful even in tragedy. Even in the tragedy of a child born with disabilities who we've now been living with for 28 years. Even the tragedy of someone close to us who dies. Even the tragedy of someone who is unjustly murdered or who goes through a car accident or whatever kind of tragedy we hear of or that we can imagine. But God is just. God is faithful. And so many of these things are just the result of sin, the fact that we live in a fallen world. But one day, and that's what the, these passages of Scripture are pointing to, one day we will all stand before him. 
And if we've responded in such a way that we shake our fist at God and we've allowed the bitterness of tragedy to turn our hearts away from God or worse, prevent us from turning to God, then that determines if we're going to stand before the beam of seat of Christ because our sin was judged by the blood of Christ or if we stand before the white throne judgment. And it's interesting here at the end of this particular verse, verse 13, it says, and they were judged each one according to his work. So God resurrects the evil dead. He brings them all before his throne. And then he judges each one according to his work. So the whole lot of those people are brought before him, but then individually one by one, he looks at those people and he renders his judgment. And you see, we cannot escape judgment except through the blood of Christ. Verse 14, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So God, after he has emptied death and Hades and brought them before the great white throne, then he cancels death and Hades. He throws them in the lake of fire as well. And this is the second death. This is the death that if you don't know Christ, that you don't want to die. This is the place you don't want to be. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. One of the most tragic, if not the tra most tragic verse in the Bible. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Many people reject the biblical doctrine of hell as being unchristian. And yet Jesus clearly taught its reality. We'll look at a couple of those verses. A sentimental kind of humanistic religion will not face the reality of judgment, but teaches a God who loves everyone into heaven and sends no one to hell. Hell is a witness to the righteous character of God. He must judge sin. Hell is also a witness to man's responsibility. The fact that he is not a robot or a helpless victim, but a creature able to make choices. Jesus said in Matthew 18, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or feet and being cast into the everlasting fire. Jesus, in speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, said, serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Jesus will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you curse it into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Another indication of the fact as we mentioned this last week, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was never intended for man. And it is a tragic thing that anyone will end up in hell. So Jesus himself, and that's just a few verses, there are many, many times that Jesus spoke on the subject of hell, what we understand to be Gehenna, the place of the living dead who do not know Christ, who are tormented forever, ever, forever and ever, along with Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist. When the fact is contemplated that Jesus Christ in his death reconciled the world to himself and that he died for the reprobate as well as for the elect, it is all the more poignant that these now raised from the dead are cast into the lake of fire. Their ultimate destiny of eternal punishment is not in the last analysis because God wished it, but because they would not come to God for the grace that he so freely offered them.
We just read in 2 Corinthians 5 earlier, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, God does not send people to hell. They send themselves by rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, by rejecting the Savior. It's known as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit where people reject the grace of God, the appealing woo, as some have termed it, of the Holy Spirit, calling upon people's hearts to turn to Christ. Hell is also a witness to the awfulness of sin. If we, all of us, could only once see sin as God sees it, we would understand why such a place as hell must exist. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. And the world means everybody. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. I can think of no better way to end a message on hell than with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we never know. We never know anyone sitting in this room or someone we know or someone listening online where they stand with Christ. I mean, we can do a pretty good job of pretending, right? That that's a part of our fallen nature, deception. So I don't want to take the risk this morning that everyone in here knows Christ. I hope you do. I pray that you do. But if there's anyone in here this morning and you've never been sure, have I trusted Jesus? Have I given my heart to him? Have I received the free eternal gift of grace through Jesus Christ? And I, I plead with you, I implore with you this morning, give your heart to Christ. What are you waiting for? Are you waiting for the great white throne? Do you think, are you so foolish to think that you're going to have an opportunity sometime down the road next week, next month, next year, and I'll turn to Christ then when I feel more like it or when I'm further along or whether I, when I'm done messing with what I'm messing with? Listen, there's no more guarantee of that happening in your life than there is that the stock market will go up and you'll become a billionaire. The Bible says today is the time, now is the time. The devil's word is tomorrow. The Bible's word is today. Today is the day of salvation. And so I'd ask you this morning, if you've never trusted him, to turn to him and just simply say, Jesus, come into my life and forgive me, I'm a sinner. And I don't want to cheapen the grace of God, but it really is that simple. If you turn your heart to him, 
he will come in and he will cleanse you and forgive you and make you a new creation in Christ. And for those of us who we know him, but maybe we're, we're a little distant, let this morning hopefully become for you a wake-up call. Draw near to God, James tells us, and he will draw near to you. Lord, we love you this morning because you first loved us. We love you, God, because you're good. You're a good, good father. And we sang it intentionally, and we mean it. And Lord, for those this morning, and I trust that there's at least one, if not several, who have finally given up and said, okay, Lord, I trust in you. I capitulate. I give up. Lord, thank you. Lord, enter their heart. Make them a new creation in Christ. Give them that that sense of awareness of your love and your presence with them now. Remind them that you will never leave them. You will never forsake them. That your grace is eternal. Your truth is always true. And that the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin has now been applied to their life by virtue of their faith, of their believing and accepting. And Lord, now there's that journey of repentance, not just a one-time act, but something we have to do every day because we sin continually. But Lord, we want to sin less and repent more. We want to walk with you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Jesus, as we sing this last song to you, would you just confirm to us how deep your love is, how much you love us, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for even as we consider the reality of hell and judgment, something that we don't like to think about, we don't like to consider, Lord, let it motivate us to get the word out that you're a good, good father. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.